0: Hi there, my name is Elizabeth Purcell. I'm a queer film historian, archivist, filmmaker, programmer, podcaster, the list goes on. And I am so excited to get a chance to talk about Tim Kincaid's 1987 film, Mutant Hunt, today. I'm gonna just come out and say it. I have a real soft spot for this film. It it ticks a lot of boxes for me. It's creative, it's kind of silly, And it's only 75 minutes long which is you know the easiest way to my heart (laughs) for a film (laughs) um unlike most people who probably first saw this movie um running it from a video store in the 80s or the 90s or catching it on a tv show like usa up all night i don't know if it played on that but i I feel like it's the type of thing that would have or collecting the now fairly valuable wizard video vhs tape which now sells for I, i think like upwards of $100. No, I first encountered Mutant Hunt and the rest of Tim Kincaid's films through my work researching the history of the gay adult film industry. This is probably going to become as no surprise, but if you did not know, I'm just going to come out and say it. Tim Kincaid is also known as Joe Gage, the pioneering filmmaker behind a slew of important all-male hardcore films from the 1970s and 80s like Kansas City Trucking Company, El Paso Wrecking Corporation, LA Tool and Die. To me, this is a great thing. I love seeing filmmakers who got their start in one type of genre moving into another one, seeing you know what they can bring to this new type of film using all of their previous experience making something kind of similar but kind of different. But sadly... Much like Tim Kincaid's fellow director, Tom DeSimone, this, this aspect of his career is usually brought up in a really negative, pejorative way. You know, it's always something like, oh, this movie sucks because it's by a guy who makes gay porn, or, uh, you know, why did a gay porn director think he could actually pull off making a real movie? Some people have even blamed these Tim Kincaid films for causing the end of Empire Pictures, which I think is ridiculous. I think these films are really wonderful and a little goofy, like I said, but also just a lot of fun and I am all for being positive about cinema. I hate people who try to be negative or who try to make fun of films. There's no, I got no time for that, so I am excited to talk about this film. And uh, much like the commentary I did for Tom DeSimoni's Reform School Girls for Vinegar Syndrome, I really want to approach Mutant Hunt by tracing the full trajectory of Tim Kincaid's career. And from there, we'll talk about making the film, some of the people who worked on it, and one of my favorite trends of the 1980s, which I always call horror chic. That, that wave of horror films made by porn directors uh, starting off in the early 80s. Something I, I do want to note right off the bat too, is, you know, I hope this isn't too confusing, but Tim Kincaid has always very purposely kept his identity separate. Going all the way back to interviews from the late 1970s, he was comparing himself to the author Evan Hunter, who would publish certain types of novels under that name, while having a popular detective series that he published under the name Ed McBain. So, to honor that, over the course of this commentary, I'll be referring to films by Tim Kincaid as being by Tim Kincaid, films by Joe Gage as being by Joe Gage, and even films by Mac Larson being by Mac Larson. I I really hope this isn't too confusing over the next hour and change, but this is also partially for my sanity because I am so used to referring to these films as being by these people. So why don't we get started? Tim Kincaid first began his career in the entertainment business at age 17 as an actor based in Los Angeles. He did some TV shows, like appearing in a pair of episodes of Combat in 1966 under his birth name, before eventually making his way to New York, where he studied acting under Lee Strasberg, did lots of TV commercials, and appeared in various theater productions. Real quick, I do have to say, I love these shots of Domina like reflected through this glass dome. It reminds me a lot of Rainer Werner Fossbinder's Chinese Roulette, for some reason. And also, uh, one of my favorite like film technique stories, which is the pioneering gay playwright, filmmaker, journalist, Jerry Douglas, who wrote the play's score, which was adapted into a film by Radley Metzger, he, he told a story once about how when he was on the set of score, With Radley Metzger kind of learning the ropes of how films were made, Radley Metzger said, My only piece of advice is always put something in the front of the frame to give it depth. (laughs) Which is something we see throughout this film, especially in all the scenes with Domina. Anyways, during the long stretches of waiting on film and TV sets, Tim Kincaid began observing crew members and grew curious about how they worked and uh, how they did what they did and how they made movies happen increasingly becoming more and more interested in transitioning away from acting and moving more into working on films behind the scenes. In 1970, he'd take a role in an early hardcore film that would essentially change his life. That film was Lewis Jackson's The Deviates*, which adds described as being, quote-unquote, a very strange film that is sadly lost. I should note, uh, for all you Vinegar Syndrome heads out there, Yes, this is the same Lewis Jackson who made The Amazing Christmas Evil nearly a decade later. It was on the set of this film that Tim Kincaid met another actor named Richard Lipton, and the two decided that they could make a better movie themselves. And three years later, that film would finally come to fruition, and it would be called The Female Response. They began casting at the end of 1970, with the plan to release the film early in the next year. And before they'd even begun shooting, they were already planning feature films. There was a brief piece about them in, I believe, Box Office Magazine, where they list all these titles that included what? The Rise and Fall of Jane, Slash Slash, Land of a Thousand Monsters, and Stone Age Woman. And if you can't already tell from some of those film titles, Tim Kincaid has always had a really deep love of genre filmmaking. Another, I guess, benefit of being a struggling actor in New York is having plenty of free time to see as many movies as he could, taking advantage of cheap matinees. In an interview I did with him, he, he told me that there's a period of about two years where he essentially saw every single movie that came out in New York. Something that's really reflected in his filmmaking throughout his entire filmography. But before Kincaid and Lipton could make their film, something came up. Tim Kincaid would get the biggest acting role of his career, playing the lead in Jack Weiss's historical slave drama, Quadroon, which is um, a film that's uh, something. (laughs) Jack Weiss is, if you're not familiar with the name, you might be familiar with some of the films he made, which are notorious, including Crypt of Dark Secrets and Mardi Gras Massacre, both of which I recommend. Back in New York, after filming Quadroon in New Orleans, Production on The Female Response began near the end of 1971. And a year later, the film was finally released by Trans-American Films, which was the secret adult branch of American International Pictures. Uh, The film did well, especially at drive-ins, but sadly it didn't really lead to anything more. In the meantime, Kincaid had been working on other projects. Uh, He did lots of crew work, uh, working as a grip, uh, doing sound, running camera, and then editing other sex films like joe sarno's sleepyhead and then making one of his own 1973's girl in a penthouse which is easily the most obscure film in his entire filmography and i believe has been essentially lost for several decades about a week before i started recording this commentary right now i actually came into possession of an original 16 millimeter print of the film and while it's no masterpiece it's really fascinating to see some of his trademarks uh at their inception, you know, seeing him starting to work through ideas that he would really explore later on, even though it was in the context of heterosexual sex, something that he would never really pursue further. At some point after the making of Girl in a Penthouse, a relationship took him back to Los Angeles, where he continued to find crew work, including a gig working for Roger Corman. I have to say real quick though, how do we know that this film was made by a queer director? Um, as we watch this first fight scene. Um. Anyways. On one night in October 1975, uh, supposedly the night of the first broadcast of Saturday Night Live, Tim Kincaid met a man named Sam Christensen at a Hollywood party. Uh, Christensen was an up-and-coming Hollywood casting director, and the two immediately hit it off and decided they should make a film together. This time, however... Kincaid wanted to make something that more reflected his interest. It'd be a gay sex film, uh, a sort of buddy road trip movie inspired by his love of genre films and the works of Russ Meyer and Sergio Leone in particular. And there'd be a political element to it as well. Uh, Joe Gage, okay, here's where Joe Gage starts. Joe Gage was wanting to make a film that would make gay men feel good about themselves. You know, this is 1975, this is nearly five years into the hardcore era, and by this point, porno chic had started to kind of erode away, especially on the gay side of the adult film industry. Um, Theaters were essentially flea pits, movies, which were initially very high class and artistic, were just kind of being overrun by junk. Joe Gage and Sam Christensen, who became Sam Gage, they'd become the Gage brothers, wanted to make something that would make people feel proud, and feel good, and express themselves through these films. And I'll talk about this in just a minute. But first, to make sure he knew the right way to direct actors in the type of film that he had in his head, Joe Gage appeared in two films by his future cinematographer, Nick Elliott. The first one is a film called Morning, Noon, and Night, which he appears in this sort of Tom Jones-inspired food fight threesome. And the second was Where Joey Lives, which is this kind of proto-Shining, where he plays the ghostly former owner of a Spanish mansion in Los Angeles. These two films did well theatrically, and they gave him the connections that he really needed to make this movie happen. The result of all this work between him and Sam and uh, the filmmakers behind these other two films was a film called Kansas City Trucking Company. Kansas City Trucking Company is essentially the story of a straight, new recruit at a trucking company, who is taken uh, on a trip from Kansas City to Los Angeles as a sort of like breaking in exercise. Along the way he's exposed to the joys of man-to-man sex, and uh, at the end, has a sort of a- awakening, if you will. But what makes this film so special? For one, it helped to put it across a new type of gay archetype. The so-called Gage Man. These are men who are tough, but easygoing. They were you know masculine but not macho they weren't sexist uh joe gage in later interviews would describe the gauge man as being the type of person who would wake up in the morning go to work and then just see what happens they're not gay they're not straight they're just men and this is part of that political idea that he wanted to get across with this film gay men identified with this whole concept of the gauge men so much and you have to remember this was the mid to late 1970s during a period of significant backlash against advances in gay rights from people like Anita Bryant and her save our children campaign, which sought to uh, undo gay rights protections across the country and John Briggs and his Briggs initiative, which would have made it illegal for any person suspected of being queer from teaching in public schools. These films all had political elements to them. Um, You know, the sequel to Kansas City Trucking Company, a film called El Paso Wrecking Corporation, has this famous scene that was cut from some VHS releases where gay porn icon Fred Halstead throws a homophobe through a window. And I've been told by people who saw these films theatrically when they first came out that when this scene would come up in the film, the whole audience would break out into applause. Uh, this is a gay porn theater where there are other things going on than just watching the movie, but people would stop and cheer and clap and hoot and holler to see this homophobe getting his. And this, you know, this this character, the Gage Man, is something that runs through his entire filmography. Think of, a, think of a character like Matt Riker in Mutant Hunt or Waldo Warren in The Occultist. They're these easygoing, you know, sexy, good-hearted, wise-cracking guys. Joe Gage uh, actually kind of expanded on this in an interview that he did for El Paso Wrecking Corporation with this term that he came up with that I love called pop masculinity. He said, quote, The films are our version of what is pop masculinity. I prefer pop masculinity to macho because I think macho is one of the most sick, troubled American hang-ups that has been around for the last hundred years or so. Which is what I want to say about this film. The most masculine men in these films do not swagger. They're not ripping up 2x4s with their teeth. The most masculine men in the pictures are rather calm, always have a sort of happy-go-lucky smile on their face, and they take life and sex pretty easily. So, as we're watching this film, just kind of imagine that with this character of Matt Riker. And another reason why Kansas City Trucking Company was such a big deal was that it had a full promotional campaign behind it. To the degree that no other gay film had really had before. Um, When it was originally released in New York in the beginning of 1977, There were ads everywhere in the subway and all over the city. They recorded radio spots. They had a really slick trailer and TV spots. Both the trailer and the poster proudly declared it to be the crossover film, which is such a daring claim to make. The crossover movie, of course, is that sort of fabled idea of a movie that would be so successful and so good that it would cross over from the hardcore ghetto to the mainstream. These filmmakers really sincerely believe that by the end of the 1970s, mainstream Hollywood films would have actual unsimulated sex scenes in them. That there would be no border between hardcore and the mainstream. Real quick before I go any further, I do have to say I love this scene right here where we're introduced to the Elaine character dancing at Club Inferno. I feel like if this film was made by any other male exploitation filmmaker in the 1980s, this would be so like gross and sleazy, I'm sure she'd be nude, it'd be very sexualized. But here, I, I don't know, there's something so like fun and cute about it to me. And I'll talk about the this actress, Tawny Brennan, later on in the commentary. But finding out that she actually was a trained dancer made me like this even more. I'm glad that she has this showcase for her abilities. So, was Kansas City Trucking Company the crossover film that it declared itself to be? To an extent, yes, actually. Uh, The film was hugely successful. When it originally opened in New York and San Francisco, it beat out Hollywood films like uh, a Star Is Born and King Kong and Three Women at the box office. Uh, Joe Gage, over the years, has told this story about when the film first premiered in New York. Uh, real quick, I-, I love this whole gimmick of Euphoron being taken orally. Uh, I've never seen something like that in another film before, actually. Anyways, when when Kansas City Trucking Company opened in New York. Uh, joe gage stuck around the theater to make sure everything was going to go okay and to see how the film was going over and he noticed for the first few weeks of its release this trend uh, of all these young women going to see the film together around lunchtime Uh, he, he thinks that they were all secretaries just taking their lunch breaks together to go see this gay porn movie that everybody's been talking about and then a few years later in the early 80s when the Joe Gage films were playing repertory screenings at the Vista theater in Los Angeles, I've heard stories about like at some screenings, just like huge amounts of like young teen girls showing up to see the movies and uh, having the time of their life, clapping and cheering and hooting and hollering, uh, watching these rowdy gay porn films in the theater. So yeah, uh, this film kind of was a, uh, the closest the gay adult genre really got to a, a crossover film aside from something like boys in the sand. But even that, I don't think it was much of a crossover film outside of New York city. And one other thing real quick, I meant to mention uh, another piece of the promotion of Kansas city Trucking and company, which really shows Gage's love for like old timey exploitation, Ballyhoo, uh, Joe and Sam Gage had One of the first, and I I think the greatest gimmick for one of these gay adult films, this was right around the same time that the film Earthquake was being released. And that film had a a big gimmick that it was released in Sensor You know, it was, uh, you're going to feel the theater shaking when the earthquake in the film happens. Uh, So they they took that and they put their own spin on that and released Kansas City Trucking Company and Surround You Sound uh, with the tagline, it takes you into the action. Um, I asked Joe Gage like what this meant. And you, you think, oh, they, they have to do a lot of work for this. It's, it turns out it was just they put some extra speakers in the theater and then had a little knob for the projectionist to turn up and down throughout the film. Uh, but, I mean, it packed them into the seats, and every other Joe Gage film that was ever released was advertised as being in Surround You Sound. And speaking of, the success of Kansas City Trucking Company led Joe Gage to make what essentially became the world's first porno trilogy. And these films that he kept making were also very politically minded. Uh, The sequel, El Paso Wrecking Corporation, is this film about male bonding and friendships. And the third film, which was released in 1979, L.A. Tool and Die, is this really gorgeously bittersweet film about aging and settling down. In the end of the decade. It's the first Joe Gage film to really kind of tackle romance. I highly recommend checking out all three of these movies, even if you're straight. Um, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and say it, Quentin Tarantino has uh, openly referenced these movies over the years, if that sells you on them. Michael Madsen's character in The Hateful Eight, of course, it was named Joe Gage. And the, the Brad Pitt character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Tarantino has described as being a quote-unquote Gage man. These films are really wonderful, and uh, L.A. Twin and Die, I think, is truly one of the greatest gay films of the 1970s, hardcore or otherwise. It is such a, a beautiful film. Anyways. So it's the end of the 1970s, and Joe Gage has made this era-defining trilogy. So he's looking to figure out what to do next. Over the course of those three films, he'd, he'd gradually introduced women into the proceedings in a way that was very controversial at the time. I mean, it even is to this day. Uh, Gay men still, if they see a woman in like a sex film, they will get squeaked out or offended or how dare you. So the next possible taboo for him to tackle, of course, was to make a fully bisexual film. And his idea was to make this big budget film starring Paul Barresi called Private Road. This is something that comes up over and over again over the years, and I don't know much more about it apart from the title, except that it was supposed to be very melodramatic and very serious. When it didn't come together, he instead decided to make an experimental film called Close Set, which was also very controversial because it was not a narrative film. Joe Gage was known for his narratives about these stories that you would want to go to the theater and sit down and watch from beginning to end. So for him to make this kind of free-floating, hazy, experimental film was something that uh, people really took some time to warm up to. After the release of Close Set, he decided to pack things up and move back to New York. Here he began working for the Mamani brothers, who are this pair of straight Israeli brothers who ran several porn theaters and studios, like the Gay Mustang Productions and the Straight Limelight Releasing. It was through this connection that he met a producer named Cynthia DePaula who had previously worked for Damon Christian on straight films like Miss Magnificent and Plato's The Movie. The two hit it off, and they came up with a really ambitious idea together. That was they were going to start their own studio that would produce and distribute both mainstream and hardcore fare, and they were going to call it New American Films. And it wouldn't just be them, Cynthia would serve as president of sales and marketing, Joe Gage would be Director of Creative Affairs. Their friend Russell Beale would be Production Supervisor. And Sam Gage, now back to Sam Christensen, would be the Chairman. During its existence, New American Films became really known for its Asian imports, uh, having big successes with films like Kung Fu Halloween and Eyes of the Dragon, and they also handled a lot of horror movies, things like uh, Psycho from Texas. The House Where Death Lives, Lisa Lisa also known as Axe. But the thing that they really wanted to try to do with this new company was to really swing big with their original productions. Box Office had this very in-depth article about the founding of the studio, and here's a quote from Cynthia DePaula from it, where she kind of lays out their plan with New American Films. She said, quote, Our X product will be top quality. If you're working with a low budget, you can't possibly put the quality into it that it deserves, to make it look like a full-length feature. When you spend the money, you can distribute it, release it, and promote it the proper way. People will go to see it if you make a big deal out of it, and even though it may cost more this way, you're going to reap greater rewards in the end. We're not in any position to put out poor quality films. We're just not. Our first major picture must be a hit, or we might as well just forget it. Once you come out with a flop, it's almost impossible to get a second chance. If we put out a so-so picture, then our next picture will be so-so before it even opens. Our first film must be the absolute best it possibly can be. And it will be, even if it kills all of us. So what was that first film going to be? It was going to be the long gestating private road, to be followed with titles like She-Gods of the Amazon and Fantastic Models Incorporated in 3D. Sadly, it wasn't going to be. Uh, Private Road was never made. Uh, I still don't know much more about it, aside from just kind of offhanded mentions and interviews. But what it really was trying to be, and what they were really banking on, was kind of the 80s version of the crossover film, which was the couple's film. This was the type of film uh, that was always heterosexual oriented that you know a a straight man could take his girlfriend or his wife to go see and they would like to go see it because they want to get wrapped up in the drama and the romance and in the emotions of it all. This actor we're going to see in just a minute playing the character of Hydro Doug DeVos was actually in what I think is like the greatest couples film of all time which is Chuck Vincent's In Love. It's a film that is so overwrought that is it's about this romance and midway through the film there's a book that's published about the romance and then there's a film adaptation of the novel of the romance we've been watching that's made in the middle of the movie it's like a harlequin novel made into a film in like the most wonderful perfect sort of way instead of making private road uh, they made a different film instead which would sadly unintentionally become the last major Joe Gage film for 20 years and that's a film called heatstroke Uh, it's this big budget culmination of all the ideas that he'd been working through over the past six or seven years it's about masculinity and friendships and sex and the nature of relationships it's this electrifying look at what the ads described as being quote-unquote male bonding with a vengeance and alongside the film Gage really tried taking things to the next level, uh, making the Gage Man into an all-out brand. You know, it's the 80s. You have, to, you have to do this. You really have to cash in and make a brand. So he made his own line of VHS releases called Gage Tapes that included his own films alongside those by filmmakers like uh, Christopher Rage and Alan Purnell. He he even had a lifestyle brand called Gage Gear. You could buy the Gage Gear Hot Talk tapes, which are Dirty Talk uh, audio cassettes, or you could buy a series of T-shirts that either said the word Gage Man or uh, had a drawing of porn stars like Casey Donovan or Al Parker drawn by the cartoonist Robert W. Richards. Now, here's what I got for you. At the same time as all this, Gage was making a series of two-day quickies for the Manhattan-based PM Productions under the name Mac Larson. These films, like uh, *Oil Rig 99*, *Red Ball Express*, *Cell Block 9*, and *Tough Guys*, are what really feel like the predecessors to these mainstream Tin Kincaid movies to me. You know, they're they're high concept plots made very quickly and very cheaply, with lots of clever use of New York exteriors. The one I always point to is Oil Rig 99, which is supposed to take place on an oil rig, like, in the middle of Sudan. (laughs) And the way he achieved this is by, like, shooting some footage of animals at the Bronx Zoo, and then, like, getting in a helicopter and shooting some footage of Central Park, and then building a little miniature oil rig (laughs) that he uses for the exteriors. So, although Heatstroke would be the last major Gage film, there were a few others, like Close Set 2 and 501. Joe Gage really did not mean for it to be. Uh, the film ends with a teaser for what would have been his next film, which was going to be this series of southern noir films about a detective named John Django. I've coded the remaining Yet again, funding issues kept these films from ever getting made, but I just want to read this preview uh, from a, from an issue of Honcho Magazine so you can get an idea of what this film would have been like. Uh, quote, The complicated Django plot revolves around missing money, a lot of it, a cross-country chase, a love triangle, and a treacherous sexual Lothario who cuts a wide swath through a troop of all-too-willing men. Django. Remember the name. Like, that, to me, like, we're inching towards Tim Kincaid territory here with a film like that. Really just diving fully into genre film territory, and I love it. And I really wish that film could have been made. But sadly, it didn't happen, and Joe Gage went on a hiatus for two decades. I hope. What's that supposed to mean? Look, I know you're professional. I know you kill for money. But do you really know what you're dealing with? These aren't by the middle of 1984, New American had closed its doors, and Tim Kincaid and Cynthia DePaula were ready to really make the jump and make a mainstream genre film. Why do that? Uh, you know, aside from the issues with funding, video and the AIDS epidemic had essentially killed the market for theatrical sex films. The video marketplace was already becoming crowded by distributors who valued quantity over quality. And they felt that there was no point in really continuing on just churning out product. Um, uh, People have this tendency to kind of simplify this whole moment, you know, in a very sort of Boogie Nights sort of way. Uh, You know, video came in and it was bad and it killed all the good times. I will say uh, just, you know, something that I have learned through my research and that I, I do strongly believe in is that video actually was Very good in a lot of ways, especially on the gay side of the adult industry. When video came in, it really began democratizing uh, the means of production for these types of videos. You know, suddenly there were ways for more specialized tastes and more like minority groups to be able to make uh, adult content. You had the first all black videos starting to be made. You had fetish videos being made. You had SM having its own kind of renaissance on video. Uh, You had bisexuality becoming a huge thing around this time with Tom DeSimone helping to kind of uh, pioneer that little wave in the mid 80s. I could very easily see if Joe Gage had continued on through this period, I could very much see him like maintaining Gage tape and turning it into like a very kind of more like specialized like almost fetishy type of thing. And, as I'll talk about later, this kind of democratization had a huge effect on the horror genre too. Anyways, Tim and Cindy weren't the only ones to realize this. Many other adult filmmakers jumped on the horror train around the same time, like Gary Graver with his film Trick or Treats, Doris Wishman with her notorious A Night to Dismember, Armand Weston with The Nesting, James Wasson and Buddy Ball with Night of the Demon, and most successfully of the bunch, Tom DeSimone, Roberto Finley, and Chuck Vincent. Yeah. And don't forget, like while many of these filmmakers were proud of the work they'd been doing in adult, they'd always meant for it to be something of a stepping stone, you know, just a training ground to get the experience before they could uh, do the crossover, have the big crossover movie. The horror boom, and uh, especially the rise of straight-to-video uh, films, gave them the shot to finally try to have that crossover in a way that was finally kind of closer uh, at reach than it ever was before. So what kind of movie for Tim and Cindy to make? Inspired by the success of Tom DeSimone's The Concrete Jungle and Ted V. Michaels' Ten Violent Women, which New American had actually distributed, they decided to jump on the newly revitalized women-in-prison genre to make a film called Bad Girls Dormitory. I talk a whole bunch about women-in-prison films, on my commentary for Tom DeSimoni's Reform School Girls, which is to me the ultimate 80s women in prison movie. If you like Mutant Hunt, I think you'll very much enjoy Reform School Girls. Uh, please check that out if you haven't seen it. Real quick too, I, I do have to say, speaking of Bad Girls Dormitory and Breeders, um, I am really surprised that the sex scene in this film right here is so... tame? You know, this film was advertised as being too gory for the silver screen, but this is, you know, I I feel like this would almost be like possibly like a PG-13 movie and not not an R or an X. Um, Anyways... After deciding to make Bad Girls Dormitory, they brought in a bunch of their regulars with them. Uh, cinematography was by Tim's old friend, Arthur D. Marks, who'd shot The Female Response all the way back in 1971. And it had a soundtrack by Man Parrish, who, if you're not familiar with Man Parrish, you should really look him up. He's a pioneering electro musician who uh, is credited with vetting the term hip hop. He did the soundtrack for the Joe Gage films. Handsome, all uppercase hands, lowercase sum, and heatstroke. And the funny thing about heatstroke, like a true crossover movie moment with heatstroke, is uh, the theme song for that film actually got him his record deal. He's told this story over the years about going to a club in Manhattan one night and hearing his theme song for this gay porn movie uh, that he'd already kind of forgotten about playing at the club he like rushed up to the DJ booth and was like, "What? What's going on? Why are you playing my song? How did you get this?" And it turns out the DJ had rented a copy of the videotape and made a bootleg acetate using the tape and was playing it in the club. And that's how he got his record deal. That's how he was able to make songs like Hip Hop Bebop and uh, work with his friends like Klaus Sonomi and Cherry Vanilla and all these other um, all these other amazing musicians. So aside from these two people and some other people from the crew, there were two new people that would become essential parts of this new burgeoning phase of Tim Kincaid's career. The first was special effects makeup artist Ed French, who, like Tim Kincaid, originally intended to be an actor, but wound up on the other side of the camera more often than not. His first film job was working on the brief horror film within a film in Susan Seidelman's Smithereens, the the part starring the late great Cookie Mueller, which is in my own opinion, the best part of that film. And from there he worked steadily on films like Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, Amy Deville Two, Sleepaway Camp, Geek Maggot Bingo, Chud, and Alphabet City. In an interview for the book Empire of the Bees, The Mad Movie World of Charles Ban, he said, quote, I don't remember exactly how I met Tim, but he was very charming. He and his producer wife, Cindy DePaula, liked to laugh, and the atmosphere was easygoing on the sets. He was quite courteous to the crew and actors. This is New York in 1985, and there weren't as many people doing or claiming to do special makeup effects back then. Matt Vogel might have suggested me. I'd worked with Matt on a few things before we worked with Tim. I'd already gained traction in New York's small film community by doing a TV anthology series called Tales from the Dark Side, so I had a bit of a reputation. Anyway... They needed someone and I came across as my usual grown-up and responsible self." It was likely on the set of either Chud or Alphabet City that the two met. Matt Vogel had previously gotten his start doing pyrotechnical effects for Don't Go in the House before working on films like Miss 45, The Nesting, the Vinegar Syndrome favorite Madman, and many others. According to a Hollywood Reporter article, the two were brought onto Bad Girl's dormitory as a pair, beginning a collaboration with Kincaid that would last through most of his mainstream period. Something, you know, talking about how this film, Mutant Hunt, is very, like, tasteful. I I, I think the thing that's the most surprising about Bad Girls Dormitory is just how sleazy it is, but also just how not. Uh, Tim Kincaid was interviewed or a newspaper article about, you know, this new wave of women in prison films in the mid-1980s. And he described it as being a goofy teen movie, except it's a women in prison movie. (laughs) And watching that movie, I I don't see the goofy teen movie. I, I see the goofiness of it. But there's something so, like, mean about it. I don't know. It's a, I think, a really fun film, though. The film would be picked up by films around the world, and Kincaid and DePaula would immediately get to work on their next project, which was to be called Riot on 42nd Street. It was shot in early 1985, but wouldn't see release until 1987. Around the same time, Kincaid and DePaula had a chance encounter with Empire Films president Charles Mann at the American Film Market, where they'd gone to sell international rights for Bad Girls Dormitory. Although Ban passed on picking up that film, he was sufficiently intrigued and asked to see what else they had on tap. The couple presented him with six different potential projects, and a deal was quickly set up for him to buy two of them, Rapist from Outer Space and Matt Riker, Mutant Hunt. They'd be shot back to back on the same schedule as Bad Girls Tormentory, which meant 10 days each, with Mutant Hunt going up first. So let's finally start talking about this movie that we're watching now. Around this time, Tim Kincaid described it in a bunch of different interviews, and I kind of want to just cobble together uh, the way he's described this film. In an interview for Fangoria magazine, he described it as being an adventure film with a science fiction background, and it's not Road Warrior or Star Wars, but it is in the future only about six years from now which you know if i if i take that and i kind of calculate that out that means this movie takes place in about 1991 (laughs) which only makes me like it even more Uh, especially because the the famous box art says it's in the 21st century so I, i don't know when exactly uh they thought it came out but this is 1991 that we're watching here He also said in that same interview, It's sort of, I don't want to say tug-in-cheek because that term's overused. It's a contemporary adventure. There's not much hardware, just some lasers and effects. It isn't knockdown, fallabout funny, but Matt Riker, Mutant Hunt, has a sense of humor. The heroes are a happy-go-lucky trio of mercenaries, adventurers for hire who share a kidding camaraderie with each other. It's a comic strip. Hold on a second. That sounds kind of familiar. If we think back to the Joe Gage films, uh, the the very comic book-inspired, as Sam Gage once described them as being, quote, Lil Abner takes his pants off comic book films, there's a continuity here, you know? I I was kind of half-joking earlier saying that, you know, Matt Riker or a character like Waldo Warren from The Occultists could very easily be the Gage man of the 80s. And I really do think there is a connection here. Even though Tim Kinkade is writing for a very different type of genre here, a very different type of mode, a different type of audience, there is that connection there. There is that, 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 that feeling, that tone, that type of character running through all of these films in a way that I find very fascinating. And speaking of you know genre and comic books, This film, along with Tim Kincaid's other Empire features, were also very obviously inspired by 1950s and 60s sci-fi. Especially films by Roger Corman, who he'd worked for back when he moved to LA in the 1970s. Another quote from Kincaid is, I've always liked the lurid exploitation movies of the 50s when I was growing up. I think the time is right for them to come back, since we're coming to the end of the whole wholesome, family-type science fiction that appeals to a wide-range audience. Now we have a big video market for these low budget pictures. There hasn't been an audience for these movies in the last 10 to 15 years. Until now. People, when they talk about Mutant Hunt, they always automatically compare it to Blade Runner and the Terminator. And those comparisons uh, are not without merit, <laughs> obviously. But when I see this film, you know, and especially after researching it and finding all these interviews, I really do see a lot more of 1950s and 60s sci fi in it. And this is also something that was really going on in American popular culture right around this time in the mid 1980s. You have this huge wave of nostalgia for the 50s and the 60s you know it's how mtv took the monkeys which had you know not been a band for decades and made them one of the biggest uh of the mid 80s you have all these tv shows from that period coming back you have the new monkeys the new gidget the new lassie the new leave it to beaver um the monsters today you have movies like back to the beach and computer beach party you have the women-in-prison revival, in a, way, in a in a weird way, is also part of that, too. Um, so, with horror, you have films like uh, Night of the Comet, Chopping Mall, Not of this Earth, Invaders from Mars, uh, Terror Vision, Night of the Creeps, Evil Spawn, and Mutant Hunt, Breeders, Bad Girls Dormitory, The Occultists, and, you know, Robot Holocaust, I think, all feed into that, too, in a way that's really... Um, not not talked about too much and i think makes these films these tim Kincaid films make a lot more sense on a to to see what they were going for when they were making these films so we have this film about this trio of happy-go-lucky mercenaries who to get to play them Of course, as Matt Riker, we have Rick Janessi, who Tim Kincaid, decades later in an interview with Sean Abley for Fangoria, described as being his muse during this period. Of course, Rick Janessi is probably best known now for his starring role in Lloyd Kaufman's Sergeant Kabuki Man, NYPD. But he first became interested in acting in 1981, studying at the American Stanislavski Theater in New York, and taking roles in productions of shows like... Look Back in Anger, The Marriage Proposal, and Titus Andronicus. To help pay the bills, and you know, this is, I guess, a predecessor to his work in Sergeant Kabuki Man. He was actually hired by Marvel Comics to play Spider Man and Captain America at promotional events and parties around the country. Some of these were really high profile, too, like playing Captain America at the White House's annual Easter egg hunt in 1985. Bad Girl's Dormitory was his very first film role where he played the heroin-addicted social worker, uh, the one character who you're supposed to think is a good guy, and as it always is in a women-in-prison movie, is not. He'd go on to appear in every single one of Tim Kincaid's films in roles of various sizes, except for his final one, She's Back. Another notable film that Janessi made around this time that's actually very similar to in tone and style as mutant hunt is escape from safe heaven which is another like post-apocalyptic film where he plays a mercenary right one fun little factlet is that nearly a decade after this film was shot uh, genessi would play a character named dr Riker in a commercial inside of a shot on video film called psychopathics she- then as elaine elliott we have tawny vrennan Who grew up in Reno, Nevada, and aspired to become a dancer, a showgirl, or a model from a very young age. In 1982, she swept the Western Models and Talent competition in Las Vegas, where she won overall in addition to categories for runway modeling, television commercial, and photography. The prize was a trip to New York, where she was quickly signed by the Elite Modeling Agency. Much like Rick Janessi, Tim Kincaid brought her into film with this one. It was her very first film. After shooting Mutant Hunt, she received some newspaper coverage for starring in something called Pages from the Heart, which claimed to be the first non-X-rated adaptation of a Harlequin romance novel made for the home video market. Which I could not find any information about outside of a few newspaper articles. I am kind of curious about that now. Afterwards she appeared in some other films. But to me, her her most notable other role was as Carmen, the femme fatale in Andrew Horn's rarely seen, experimental, no-wave noir film, The Big Blue. She's really great in it, and it's a shame she didn't have more of a career. After shooting these movies, she moved to Los Angeles where she did some TV and some other films. Most notably, for me, she was on an episode of 90210. as Johnny Felix, we have Ron Reynaldi. And something something I should note, too, that I noticed as I was doing my research for this is, you know, maybe just a coincidence, but Felix is Tim Kincaid's birth last name, and Elaine is the first name of the pseudonym that Cynthia DePaula used for producing Heatstroke. So I, I wonder if that was just a coincidence or, you know. This was Reynaldi's first release film, But he also was in a film that had a very troubled production history. And, you know, this film has so many, like, Vinegar Syndrome connections in it. And this one I think might be one of my favorites, is that he was actually in John Liu's New York Ninja, uh, the film that was never completed, that Vinegar Syndrome recently edited and dubbed and released for the first time. Uh, He plays a mugger who shows up throughout the film, and he's not credited on IMDb, but if you're looking for him, you can very obviously see him. He also pulled double duty on Mutant Hunt, also serving as the film's stunt coordinator. And after shooting Mutant Hunt, you go on to have a small part in David Pryor's Man Killers, which is uh, his direct to video, uh, gender swapped version of The Dirty Dozen, starring Edie Williams of Russ Meyer fame, and do stunts on Paul Morrissey's Spike of Bensonhurst. And those are our three leads. Um, most of the other actors in this film, I could not find any information about. They didn't have they didn't have many roles outside of this film. But there are a few other names that are notable to me uh, worth pointing out, too. Uh, the biggest one, of course, is Leanne Baker as the pleasure droid who gets tossed out the window at the beginning of the film. Bad Girls Dormitory was her first film and should go on to star in Breeders and have, uh, I think most notably, the lead role in Necropolis, which she is so good in. I love her in that film so much. Um, In an interview for the book, Empire of the Bees, The Mad Movie World of Charles Band, she had this to say about working with Tim Kincaid. I don't think he was overly concerned with the acting. He just kind of let us do our thing. He seemed to particularly enjoy shooting the quote-unquote money shots, the slime pit and breeders, the six boobs in necropolis. I also remember him being protective in a way. For the shower scene in Breeders, he had everyone leave the set, except those that needed to be there. I'll talk about the crew in a bit, but it is notable that many of the people who worked behind the scenes on this film were regulars at Chuck Vincent's Platinum Pictures. Chuck Vincent, of course, was the very prolific and very highly acclaimed New York-based sex film director behind films like... um, Farewell Scarlet, Misbehaven, Jack and Jill, the the film I mentioned earlier in Love, and Roommates, which I think is the closest the adult film really truly got to the crossover movie. But all throughout the 70s, he was also making non-adult films like Blue Summer and Summer Camp. But in the early, at the turn of the decade with the beginning of home video and Hey Cable, he just jumped on it and like fully crossed over making so many films like uh, warrior queen slammer girl uh, student affairs uh, Cleo, leo all these different films for vestron video and other companies in a way you know what tim kincaid and cynthia paula were doing with these films is kind of what chuck vincent had already been doing But besides the crew crossover there are two people in this film who are also in some Chuck vincent movies like adrian lee who plays the character amber dawn who i believe is the girl in the alley scene who you know she was in breeders and necropolis but she was also in slammer girls and sex appeal also ed malia who i believe plays her boyfriend in this was in robot holocaust and then films like party girls young nurses in love and i think the best non-adult Chuck Vincent movie Thrilled to Death which is a film that more people need to see it's a really great psychodrama that's uh, very obscure but shouldn't be my other favorite member of the cast here is the punk girl who's played by Chris McNamee who went on to star in Class of Newcomb High in Street Trash also as a punk with very amazing hair so like, I do wonder like how much of this was a character and how much was like her as, like, herself? So, Matt Riker, Mutant Hunt, was first announced in August of 1985, with production beginning on September 4th. It was originally intended to be a quick 10-day shoot, but was extended to 15 due to the complexity of the film. A majority of it was shot at the abandoned military ocean terminal in Brooklyn, most notably the entire finale at Intel Trex, Another location that we see right here, uh, Matt Riker's apartment next to the former Great Shanghai restaurant at Bowery and Market in Manhattan. Some crew people, like I was just saying, uh, costume design was by Jeffrey Wallach, who had a long career working in just about every aspect of New York's adult film scene. He did a lot of uh, non-sexual acting, he did art direction, costumes, stills, and effects for major filmmakers like the previously mentioned Chuck Vincent. Cecil Howard, Henri Pichard, Roberta Finlay, and Michael Ninn. Most notably Michael Ninn's very, very famous and influential film, Latex, from the 90s. The production design for this film was done by future acclaimed author and filmmaker Ruth Ozeki. In a recent interview by Melina Watrous for The Believer, she said, I was hired as storyboard artist because I used to draw and had published illustrations over in Japan. But it turned out that we didn't have time to do a single storyboard. A week before production started, the producer realized that we didn't have an art director, so she looked around the table and pointed at me and said, You be the art director. I'd never even been on a film set before. Luckily, they hired me an intern, this fabulous artist and film editor who had just graduated from School of Visual Arts and who had worked on film sets before. It soon became clear that she knew everything and I knew nothing, so we worked as a team and eventually started our own props design company. We made breakaway walls, exploding heads, and severed hands in something called the Orgasmatron. That intern that she mentioned was Marina Zerko, and the two would go on to work together on several of Kincaid's future films together as Medusa Productions. Zerko would also on her own work on Street Trash, uh, another perfect new york a goopy movie just like this one also slime city that she didn't work on but i think some other people involved with this film went on to work on mutant hunt was shot by first-time cinematographer thomas murphy who also came up through chuck vincent he worked as a gaffer or grip on films like in love jack and jill 2 delivery boys and the the non-chuck vincent related i believe but Vinegar Syndrome favorite, Nightmare Weekend. After Mutant Height, he'd start working for De Royale's groundbreaking Femme Productions, which was the very first adult film studio owned by women that made videos for women. And Kincaid's old friend, Arthur D. Marks, would also return to shoot second unit. According to Fangoria's set report, there were some issues during production here, uh, like I mentioned, the production was extended from 10 days to 15. And this was because parts of the script are being rewritten several times during shooting. There were extra effect sequences added in at the very last moment to appease Charles Band who had visited the set at some point. And uh, Ed French details one of these problems in his interview for Empire of the Bees, The Mad Movie World of Charles Band. He said... We were getting behind in the typical two-week shooting schedule we had on Mutant Hunt, so Tim set it up for me and Tom Murphy to shoot special effects makeup insert shots on a Sunday, the gory close-ups, etc. I was off in some space with Tom and maybe one other guy, trying to get caught up with all the glue needed, you know, the missing pieces to hopefully make this thing somewhat fluid and coherent, you know, like a real movie. We're about four hours into shooting these valuable little snippets, puppet reactions, weird electronic devices inserted into dummy cyborg necks, when Tom turns to me and says, there's no film in the camera. I said, what? He says, no film, we haven't shot anything. I said, you're joking. No I'm not, he says. I could have gotten very angry, except I remember how deeply humiliated he appeared to be. We just wasted a Sunday afternoon of our own time getting nowhere on a film already behind schedule. I do wonder what the original vision for this film was like. I have an excerpt from the press synopsis for the film that shows how it was altered during shooting and editing. Uh, we already passed the scene, but if, if you go back and rewatch it, just compare it to this. The synopsis read, In Spanish Harlem, two Latin lovers walk the night streets. The mutant, walking in the shadows, leaps out at the couple and drags them into an alley where he brutally murders them. Dismembering them with his inhuman strength, Tukdo appears on the scene at the moment the murders are completed. He engages the mutant in a martial arts battle, using whatever debris he can find in the alley to defend himself. Tukdo finally vanishes the creature and dismantles it. A little girl screams as she sees a dismembered mutant hand scurrying into a sewer drain pipe, which is, of course, completely different in the final film. Uh, this Tukdo character doesn't even show up until Matt Riker has defeated that mutant that he was supposed to defeat. And of course, it's not a little girl who sees the uh, the, the, the hand scurrying into the sewer. It's uh, a woman who, I believe, according to the Fangoria set report, was originally supposed to see a head being rolled down the alley in her direction. The climax also in particular feels really underbaked to me, especially this whole character of Domina, who I love so much, played by Stormy Spill, who i wish i could find more about but i came up empty-handed you know she we see her throughout this entire film she has this big present she's wonderful and then at the very end her special like mega robot just gets shot with a gun once and she just just is like okay that's it and turns around and like walks out of the room and that's it <laughs> um, but then again i mean that very anticlimactic climax it does remind me of the 50 sci-fi films that Tim Kincaid was very openly drawing from here. And honestly, I think that's what I really appreciate about this film. It's way, way high concept, even if it tries to pull off a little too much. Regardless of any issues during production, the film was finished in 15 days, and then followed by Breeders, which was then shot in just 8. This has nothing really to do with Mutant Hunt, but um, in that Fangoria article that I've referenced, which is about both Mutant Hunt and Breeders, there's this photo from the climax of Breeders that shows uh, the group of naked women covered in white goo in the slime pit, which apparently got so many complaints that it caused nudity to be banned from the pages of Fangoria and almost got it pulled from news shelves across the country. Uh, Truly the legacy of Tim Kincaid. Post-production on both films was completed at Empire's home base in California, and the film's score was provided by Don Great. Yes, the music was recycled from Breeders, and later reused in David Dakota's Dream Maniac. The timing of the completion of the two films coincided with a major push by Charles Band to aggressively expand Empire Pictures. In a January 1986 issue of Variety, he outlined plans to produce and release two dozen films over the course of the year. So even before either of these two movies that Tim Kincaid and Cynthia DePaula had just made for him were even released, he already had them making more. And not just directing. This time they were producing Bruce Hickey's Necropolis, which was shot that same month. And even though Breeders was shot after Mutant Hunt, it was the first of the pair to be released in May 1986. There was a hitch, though. While both films had originally been shot for theatrical release, Band decided to try a new strategy, releasing breeders directly to the home market through his Wizard video label. Wizard had existed since Band's exit from his first video company, Meta Video, which was later retitled Media Home Video. Yet they, for the most part, only ever released pickups. Band's older films like Auditions and Parasite plus cult classics like Pink Flamingos, in lots of horror. To the extent that I think most people, when they think of Wizard Video, they think of horror. The lurid big boxes for films like Lucio Fulci's Zombie 2, and a whole raft of Jess Franco films. When Band started Empire in 1983, he inked a deal for the studio's titles to be distributed on Destron Video's main label. Um, think of films like Trancers, Ghoulies, and Reanimator, while Wizard Video was relegated to being distributed under Vestron's Lightning Video sublabel. With so much new product, only certain titles could really be given full theatrical releases, so Wizard Video switched gears a bit, becoming the home of direct-to-video releases of some Empire titles that weren't really being labeled as Empire films. This made sense. 1986 seemed to have really been the year that shot on video and direct-to-video horror really began to become a marketable thing. In the years prior, there would already been releases like David Pryor's Sledgehammer and Blood Cult, but 1986 alone brought titles like Night Ripper, Spine, Truth or Dare, A Critical Madness, Escape from the insane Asylum. And of course, one of the great titles of all time, Gourmet, The Zombie Chef from Hell. Much like how video helped to democratize the porn industry, I think this was a good thing. These movies were cheaper and faster to produce, and they gave filmmakers and labels the ability to market directly to fans through the horror zine network so there was no need for costly theatrical exhibition, or uh, fighting for screen space, or dealing with print traffic. It allowed people who might not otherwise be able to make films. Uh, You know, thinking of filmmakers of color like Chester Novel Turner or S. Torriano Berry. But here's where the Tim Kincaid films differ than practically any of the others that were being made for this market. They were being shot in full 35mm. They weren't being shot on video they weren't being shot in 16 millimeter and they weren't being shot in super 8 which is something that was uh gaining popularity around this time too the gamble paid off breeders did well and got a, quite a bit of press with that great tagline a world premiere in your home on the very <laughs> iconic lurid wizard video big box so charles Ban went further with this. He gave Tim Kincaid and Cynthia Paula a 10-picture deal, with all of these 10 films to be made over the span of 18 months and to be released straight to video. Which to me just sounds insane, they'd have to start producing a new film every 55 days in order to meet this sort of schedule. Band also brought in two other filmmakers based outside of New York to make direct-to-video films for him too around this time. There was David Dakota in Hollywood and Gorman Bouchard in Connecticut. Dakota's first release for band, Dream Maniac, would also birth the famous gimmick slogan, Too Gory for the Silver Screen. The first of this next wave of Kincaid films was Robot Holocaust, which was shot in August of 1986. And of course, it's the most well known of all of these for being featured in a second season episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Then came Peter Mnuchin's Enemy Territory, which Tim and Cynthia produced, which began production in November. Mutant Hunt would finally see release on April 21st, 1987. It was the third, despite being the first of the five movies the pair had directed or produced, to be released. In speaking of the film's video release, we are about to finally see how they executed the uh, the video release's iconic box art with this uh, decaying mutant cyborg lifting up Z and, I guess, supposedly choking him to death. <laughs> um, uh, as with most of uh, Empire's films, the artwork was likely created before the film even was shot. So I do wonder um, how, they, how they decided they needed to uh, bring this image to life. Mutant Hunt would wind up being the very final release by Wizard Video, and along with Robot Holocaust and Psychos in Love before it, just one of a few later titles to be released in a traditional slipcover, as opposed to that famous big box. I do love the original box copy for this release, so I'm just going to go ahead and read it. When New York is besieged by mutant cyborgs with an insatiable lust for ripping human beings apart... It's dedicated mutant hunter Matt Riker to the speedy rescue. A diabolical scientist, Z, has injected these mechanical zombies with a sexual narcotic that induces a thirst for killing. All over Manhattan, the robotic Romeos begin loving them and leaving them dead. With two trusty mutant hunting pals, Riker descends into the dark tunnels beneath the city to find Z's secret lab. Riker attacks with revolutionary lasers. The mutants are clamoring for more of the demonic drug. How are Z's plans going for world domination? Not so hot. It's a terrifying fight to the finish as you'll discover when you scavenge for danger on the mutant hunt." I love it. <laughs> and now we're knee deep into the climax of Mutant Hunt. And like I was saying earlier, I guess I really am curious like what the original script this film was like because like watching it now again it seems so disjointed you know we have all these like fragments of shots of like one character staring and reacting and then uh, it cuts to a shot of like another character just standing there and reacting and then the same couple of mutants keeps showing up all over the place and you know mixed into this are these like really artistically well composed shots it's just you know, uh, I, I read that quote from Ed French earlier, where he's talking about shooting pickups, and I wonder like how much of this was done, um, apart from the the main shoot. At the same time, though, like I'm not I'm not knocking the film. It it doesn't really have much tension, but I kind of like that about it. This is such an easygoing film. Like there are no, it, I can't really. I can't sense there being really any stakes here. (laughs) Um, The mutants are kind of clumsy. They're like rotting and falling apart. So I don't see a threat there. Uh, Nobody really seems to care that much because they're just standing there watching while their friend is fighting someone else and Domina is just standing there watching too. I really, I really do love it. Anyways, to move on, Tim Kincaid's next film, Maximum Thrust, aka Waldo Warren, Private Dick Without a Brain, aka The Occultist, would begin production for Empire's new lower-budgeted sublabel Beyond Infinity a few months after Mutant Hunt was released in July. But Empire would be no more by the time the film was finally released as The Occultist on Unicorn Video in 1989. Likewise. In December 1987, Kincaid made a Carrie Fisher vehicle called Dead and Married for Vestron's direct to video label Lightning Video. But it also wouldn't see a release until 1989 as well. In the end, what had happened to the porn industry happened to the horror industry as well. You had this flood of low budget releases that really oversaturated the market, and the subsequent confusion uh, that buyers and renters had, you know, distinguishing the From Beyond to the Dream Maniacs really like, led them to pull back and become more wary of what they were renting. Empire had expanded so much and so fast that the market just couldn't keep up with it. And this, along with Ban's purchase of the Dino De Laurentiis studio in Rome and the unexpected downturn of the value of the dollar led to Empire's end. This essentially marked the end of the Tim Kincaid film era. At the end of 1988, he began running acting workshops that he was advertising in box office. And in the 90s, would write a pair of Jackie Collins-esque airport novels. Sleazy, a little tawdry, fun to read. The first was Today, Tomorrow, and Always, which is about the film industry. And then Never Let Me Go, which sells for quite a bit of money now. Joe Gage would finally return to a very different gay adult film industry in 2001 with his entrance into the Gay VN Award Hall of Fame, and then the release of the very first Joe Gage film since 1984, Tulsa County Line. And he's been constantly active in the industry ever since. Something that's never made quite clear is what he's about to do with his hand. That Thangoria uh, article calls it uh, a futuristic cigarette lighter, which I kind of love, but... <laughs> you see like domina just like turned around and was like okay i'm done see ya <laughs> i really do have a really deep love and appreciation for these Tim Kincaid films and i really do hope that this re-release um exposes them to a new audience and I hope people will be more understanding of them and take them for what they are, which are just really low stakes, really creative, really likable no, out little here. horror films. I think I said this at the top of the commentary, but I've never seen anyone give a full career overview of Tim Kincaid, of Joe Gage, of Mac Larson. And I really hope that this commentary can kind of help fill that void. Because he really is, I think, one of the most important queer filmmakers of the past 50, 60 years. You know, his films have done so much for the gay community, the way that gay men saw themselves on screen for, you know, sometimes for the first time. And the fact that his work has resonated for generations, the fact that there are people, you know, around my age in their 30s who, were, who grew up on Joe Gage films, the way that people... Uh, generations older than me also grew up on Joe Gage films is remarkable and I I really hope that people will now see that you can't you know separate these films from those films because they're all part of one long filmography you know you don't get a Gage man like Matt Riker without Joe Gage and here we are with the end of the film Once again, I really do hope that this has been informative. I hope you've enjoyed the commentary, and I really hope you enjoy this release. And I hope it inspires you to check out some more Tim Kincaid or Joe Gage films. Once again, I am Elizabeth Perschell of Ask Anybody, and I will leave you with this triumphant final shot of Tim Kincaid's Mutant Hunt. Thank you so much.